0: In the not-too-distant future, you will experience your wildest fantasies
1: or your worst nightmares in the glow of Nurovid dreams. And then they gave me the shot. Now, one woman is about to uncover the truth. I'm not going anywhere until I find out who killed my sister. And one cop is determined to protect her. You don't have to stay here.
2: I've got to see it all the way. I'm going up there with or without you. Neurobid, novocaine for the soul. Melt your mind with liquid
1: dreams. Something called the ritual. It's like this big feast. And I was the main chorus. I want a taste. Now it's time to stop watching and start participating. A rush of ecstasy and fear. Liquid Dreams Candace Daly Richard Steinmetz Barry Denham Sex is only the wrapping paper The real turn on is power
0: Radio Drome Welcome to a very cyber episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me as always is the Canadian rape ape himself, the Peter.
1: Yep, looking uh, juicy as all shit as always. And right away he starts swearing. But <laughs> <laughs> that was intentional. I had to make you make a bleep right at the beginning. Yeah, bastard jet. Ha ha. So,
0: Cecil will not be joining us this week. He had something come up. If you guys want to help out the show, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is buy something at adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME. And also, especially if you're going to be looking for the main movie we're going to be talking about tonight, you need a VPN. And to do that, you go to 1201beyond.com backslash dromevpn. And there you'll be able to get redirected to Nord's site, NordVPN, and they will protect your data. They will encode your data. You can skip around, say, oh, hey, that music video isn't available in my region. Boom! All of a sudden you're in you're in London and you can watch that music video. Nord is a great service. And if you go through our link at 1201beyond.com backslash dromevpn, you can get 75% off of a three-year plan that's only three dollars and 79 cents a month for nord's protection so i highly recommend it and it helps us out we also have a patreon and stuff you want to help us out you know all of the shows have moved i've had people saying hey where's all the radio drums you are not on soundcloud anymore Eh." yeah soundcloud screwed us i'm not going to get into it all the shows are on anchor.fm now so go over there for it so now all the housekeeping is out of the way Peter, you remember how in the in the mid-90s, cyber was everything, right? As computers yes. were coming in, it was cyber, 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 cyber. Well, the movie we're talking about tonight, Liquid Dreams, predates that. This is from 1991. This is a cyber movie. It doesn't have cyber in the title. But this is a, cyber it punk... is a
1: cyberpunk film, absolutely. Oh, it's
0: without a doubt a cyberpunk film. Cyberpunk erotica. In a way, it's a softcore film, but not in a prurient way, because... I think writer-director Mark Manos actually is trying to say something. And we have Mark on the show later. He'll talk about this. I actually think he's trying to say something about how sex has value and how it's something that's bought and sold as a commodity. You just watched the movie last night. Would you agree?
1: Well, there's definitely a message to it as far as that goes. Like, there are people in this future, particularly Tracy Walters' character, nerve damage from sex, a higher valued system, particularly in that cyberpunk L.A. future, and it, it seems like a very, very dangerous kind of place to live. I thought that was interesting, as- so I can definitely see that. Because Liquid Dreams was one of those movies that just flew under the radar.
0: Okay, it played on HBO now and then. It did have a VHS release, it, it played some film festivals, but this was one, it was on Academy Home Video when it came out, and it, this was near the end of Academy's life, and Academy was already a small title. Like, if you are a VHS collector, the Academy titles are almost always worth something because they had low print runs so being on academy probably did not help the film it's an interesting movie for one thing i I think it's misunderstood on the internet because and mark and i talk about this you look up any review it's called a video drone ripoff except for the fact that Mark admits he hadn't seen Videodrome when he actually made this that's it's nothing like Videodrome at all i i think just like I never if, got if, that you, vibe if you if you said what the plot was it's about television that warps your pre- reality and that that's the only thing i see as thematically in tune with Videodrome
1: well that's really only just like a commentary of like media and like mass media and stuff like that uh altering people's thoughts and, and perceptions and whatnot if you want to make say that is a ripoff of video drum then you can say that Johnny mnemonic is a ripoff of video drum that's like similar too. Henry Rollins' big speech about this causes it, this causes it, information... Okay, so I guess... Oh, so I guess if it's information overload, it's a ripoff of, of fucking Videodrome, right? Like, shut up. People, people are so simplistic. Do you think that this movie
0: should be more well-received? Because, like I said, it's... Th- that VHS copy that I sent you, that's basically all that's out there. It had a DVD release that was just like that and gone and the hmm. DVDs are 50, 60 bucks if you can find them now. This was oh really God. back in the early 2000s and it's still a full frame DVD no less because this was the really early days of DVD. So it still Lit- just looks like a VHS basically. Just higher quality just higher video yeah. quality. So I, I think Liquid Dreams is one of those films that that nobody seems to know and I, and the reason I contacted writer-director Mark Manos is I wanted it to be more well known because right. th- 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 that's sort of what we do i I like shining a spotlight on films and filmmakers that others ignore do you think that this movie should be seen by more people do you think it's 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 an interesting film
1: i do think it is i thought some of the acting in it was a little bit wonky particularly from more of the uh, stripper adult industry type actors in it I very much enjoyed Tracy Walter, Bob, in it. I thought he was good as a sort of weird, stuttering, sex pervert, nerve damage man.
0: Uh, I thought he was very good. I Um, I thought Candace Daly as the star, poor Candace, she died a
1: couple of years after the movie came out of a drug overdose. She, She was actually pretty good. I actually thought she was quite good. And the movie itself, the aesthetic of it, the way it looked and the way it was paced and cut... I was going into it, honestly, expecting, like, hardcore porn for some reason. But I, th- I thought the movie was actually—there there was a, a interesting cyberpunk element to it. And I do think more people should know about it because, I mean, this is—it's kind of one of those uh, earlier 90s cyberpunk styles. And I do think more people need to see it and more people need to give it a chance before passing it off as, a, like, a Videodrome knockoff, which it's not.
0: One of the things I really, really liked about it was the the visual look. Lots of deep blacks. Lots of rooms illuminated only by a television. I mean, oh, okay. it's
1: a very good looking movie. Yeah, uh, I the, the, the cinematography it, is fantastic. It was really, really nice looking.
0: Yeah, the, the the cinematography is fantastic in this. The way the, the way it's lit, it, it has a. And I hope I'm not putting too much praise onto it with this word it has a very dreamlike surrealist quality did did you get sort of a rinse dream vibe off of the movie visually a little bit yeah because i actually know because we turned the director mark manos has listened to some of our other shows we turned him on to someone like rinse dream he didn't know really? who, he didn't know who Rince was before before he started <laughs> listening to the back catalog so he just kind of already had that style but didn't even realize it i i talked to mark manos and we're going to talk a little bit about his his career, and everything in this. Something that I bring up very briefly in the interview is so telling about how Liquid Dreams has sort of been forgot is when I first contacted him, I asked him, are you the Mark Manos that directed Liquid Dreams? He's like, maybe. Because <laughs> he didn't he didn't know what to think. Because he's like, nobody contacts me about this movie. <laughs> That's what we do here at, at Radiodrome. Here is me and Mark Manos talking about all all various forms of nonsense for the next 40-some minutes. First, Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me because you seemed a little shocked when I first contacted you that I was contacting you about Liquid Dreams. Uh,
2: you know, it's funny. It's just uh, such a blast from the past. A past with tons of good memories and they all came flooding back and it's just it's just so funny. Uh, you know, when when, uh, when it came up, you, you want, I wonder, you know, is, is this a mistake? Is there another Liquid Dreams? <laughs> but no, no, there's
0: not. <laughs> no, it, it, it's the Liquid Dreams you're thinking of because I remember getting this on VHS years and years ago go on an old academy title what prompted you to make the movie before we get into what the movie's about and all that how did liquid dreams come about i had made short films
2: before i went to the san francisco art institute and made some short films there and and i was very influenced by horror and uh my shorts tended towards horror, psychological thriller, I guess. And I just wanted to, I love that genre. And I just wanted to find a story that would uh, that would do that. I was working with a producer named Zane Levitt. I had cut a movie as an editor that he produced. And then he said, uh, look, you know, you're just so, you know, you're all wound up. You just want to direct so badly. All right, fine. Let's find something. I'll produce it. We'll do it. So that, with those words, I just went on a, a search for scripts and read many, many scripts, everything I could get my hands on. And I read a script by a friend of mine, and it was a genre kind of horror thriller. And it was set in the world of Hollywood, kind of the seedy world of Hollywood and strip clubs and S&M. And that was the big reveal in the movie was there was this taboo, this S&M ritual going on behind the scenes in this strip club. And I read the script and I, much as I liked Zach, and uh, there was some good writing in it, there was some good characters and fun dialogue, I said, you know, it's just not its just not special enough, Zach. I mean, you know, if it was like, I don't know, say we just replaced the S&M and made up a different taboo, suppose we set it in the future, suppose we, and by the time we had this one hour phone call of me saying all the things that wrong or the things we could change, we kind of had the outline for a whole new story. And that was how Liquid Dreams was born. So it was just, yeah, the design desire to find a vehicle to make i like movies and television whatever film that are just visceral that just take you on a ride and that's what i want as a viewer that's what i love to make and uh whether i'm in editing or directing i just want the audience you know to laugh to cry to just have an emotional visceral experience so uh, and i think you know for me that genre that sort of psychological thriller and i love the movies of uh particularly Roman Polanski and uh, David Lynch, and uh, at that time especially. So uh, David Cronenberg as well that's how you know liquid Dreams started and then like we just met we, we hammered out a new outline and then we wrote the script we gave it to zane zane liked it and then uh t- took a couple of years to get the money together to make it
0: what was it shot on because we only really have old vhs copies even all the reviews that are on the internet all come from or clearly vhs print i know there was a really short run dvd in the early 2000s but that's stupidly yeah. expensive at this point so sure. m- more people are going to see this i mean it's the internet it, it, it's out there on bootleg it's on youtube stuff like well, I that i love
2: that it is I, I i love that it's some way accessible you know because it was before netflix and that and uh, uh it was shot on 35 millimeter film and it did have a brief theatrical run you know played a lot of film festivals and when we made the movie it was you know super low budget i knew a, a friend of mine had made his first feature through this producer, Cassian Elwes. Cassian at the time was making these sort of low-budget, straight-to-video, thrillers, exploitation, exploitation movies. He told me about the experience with Cassian with his movie, uh, wrote a script sent cassians cassian said great well, yeah let's do it so then they proceeded to put you know put together an office and casting and pre-production and location scouting building a crew at the last minute funding fell through from cassian so my friend kind of almost had a nervous breakdown which i can totally relate to and understand why he would and then his producer was working to try to find money from a different source and she started putting together some cast, and then Cassian came through and found the money and then financed the movie. So he told me that story at a pool party that I was at, and I thought, man, you know what? I'm not sending the script to that guy. That sounds miserable. And then we proceeded to, we, we had deals with different companies, and one company was ready to do it, and they had half the money they had the foreign sales money, but they needed to find the domestic money. And then we had another deal that had the domestic money, but they didn't have the foreign. And we couldn't put it together. And I kept rewriting the script to these uh, different executives' ideas of what it should be and bending the script a little bit. And then and it was just not happening. And then one day I said, you know, f*** it. I'm, uh, what's that guy's name? Cassian Elways. I'm sending it to him. So I sent him the script. I kind of forgot about it. And the normal way in Hollywood or anywhere else, I guess, is you send your idea to somebody. And if they don't call you and say they're interested, you don't need to call them because you know they're not. However, I had sent it to Cassian. I think it was there maybe a week and a half or something. And I went to a store that was kind of like a Circuit City or something to buy like a blender or a toaster something completely unglamorous and there i ran into this writer that i knew i'd worked with who i just knew a nice enough guy i guess but just a talentless hack and there he was wheeling out this gigantic television out the front door as i walked in to get my toaster i said oh wow and he said so what are you up to and i was like ah, i'm trying to get this movie made anyways i got so f***ing annoyed at the hollywood and how people with little talent Succeed that I went home, picked up the phone, called Cassian, and uh, he. I got got his assistant, got him on the phone, and I said, "Hey, what's the what's the deal? Do you like uh, the script I sent you?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, I, I do actually." And I said, uh, "Wow, that's good." And he said, "Yeah, we should meet about it." I said, "Okay, well that sounds good. How about a couple weeks from now?" I'm pretty busy. I said, "Listen, you know what? I'm going to Detroit on Monday, and if I don't find some good reason to come back here, I might not." So let's meet before Monday. And he, says, he laughed. And he says, okay, all right. Well, how about tomorrow afternoon? Because it was like Thursday when I called him. And I went over to his office with Zane. We then, first of all, we went and worked all night and made a budget knowing what Cassian's kind of made these like $300,000 movies. And we did everything we could. We, we had previously had a budget for, I think, a million and a half or something. We worked all night. We made this budget. It came out to $360,000. It was the cheapest uh, we could get it. He, he said, well, I'll meet with you guys. Bring your budget. We brought the budget. We gave it to him. I thought he was going to take one look at the bottom line, $360,000, and throw us out of there because I thought that was his magic number. Anyways, he uh, we talked about the movie a little bit, and he just said, you know what? Okay, let's do it. When do you want to start shooting? I said, well, uh, geez, uh, I don't know. I guess we need you know, time for, for finding locations and cast and crew probably. I don't know. We probably need. I started hemming and hawing, and he says, how about October 26th? Which was about I don't know eight six eight weeks away, and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "That's a lucky day for me. That's my daughter's birthday." Okay, great. Shook hands and walked out of his office, and and then and then he kept asking us. So, what do you need? And we said, "Well, I don't know. I guess we need to just start working. You know, try to find cast and so on." And he asked us like three times, "What do you need?" And we're so we were so thick and so green, we didn't realize he was saying, "How much money do you need right now to get cameras and film stock and stuff to do huh? anything to do, <laughs> to get a you know anything." We were so naive. I mean Zane had an existing office, so we didn't think about that. But we walked, got out to the parking lot and then I said to Zane, we're so dumb. He's asking us how much money go we gotta walk back in there and tell him we need some money. So we walked back in, Cassian we need to uh you know, I don't know, two hundred dollars or something. (laughs) And uh, he wrote us a check for two hundred dollars. Maybe the money's not gonna really be there. And I said to Zane, call call up Cassian and tell him we need fifty dollars for Xerox paper. (laughs) Because I kept thinking and he was writing personal checks for it. And I thought the more he spends, the more likely it is he'll make the movie, even if it's 50 bucks. So, uh, so that's how we proceeded. And uh, just days before October 26th, he brought over a guy and he said, hey, this is the guy who he called us up. This guy, I'm going to bring him over. I think he'll finance the movie. So we did. We met with him, gave the guy a little tour of our offices and uh, showed him drawings and storyboards or whatever we had. I gave him my pitch and uh, then casting called us back and uh, that guy financed the film. So after all, you know, when Cassian did come through the financing and made the movie with him, and I actually had a great time, he was very supportive. He really pushed me, uh, he just encouraged me to do my thing, which was awesome. There was times when he came to dailies and watching the film, was exhausted, watching usually at noon, because we were shooting all night. He'd come to the lab and watch the dailies with me. He would egg me on and just say, man, do your thing. In the end, it worked out uh, great, and I was, uh, it was only it was only stupid that I didn't send it to him two years earlier, but maybe the timing worked out perfectly. Maybe it wouldn't happen if I did. So,
0: Because as we all know, a producer not interfering in a movie is relatively rare in Hollywood. I'm sure you see it all the time in the current stuff you do. Oh, yes, especially in television. But
2: he, I think he is a guy who's kind of the friend of the artist. Uh, he has made a lot of cool movies. If you look up his credits, he, he's made a lot of cool movies. Liquid Dreams was the first one that took him to Cannes. He couldn't believe it when we got
0: in. Speaking of that, how was the experience at Cannes?
2: It was amazing. It was, uh, I think it was uh, to go to Cannes, you know, the late 1900s. <laughs> it's one of the spectacles of the world. It's It's really, uh, the, the only frustrating thing was, and this was, earliest days kind of cell phones was that you always felt like there was probably something else you should be going to or at and you'd be across town and the traffic is unbelievable and it's this tiny like little village that's very quaint but it's just you know like i don't know 30,000 people from all over the world hollywood and and all the other movie making places people from all countries and um it was just a blast just uh, so cool uh Uh, Alan Parker drinking a beer in a pub, you know, two seats down from me and just just that kind of thing that you, you wouldn't normally run into just all these filmmakers
0: were you actually able to make it for the budget did you go over did you wonder because the, the reason yeah, i'm asking did. is yeah we did the film looks really good and, and i know this Thank adds you. expense in a lot of cases other than a couple of exteriors it's all sets isn't it i mean you, you don't have very Completely. many natural locations in no, the thing. no it was
2: all sets it was all shot in this building in hollywood it was called we called it the technicolor building and i know technicolor did a It was on Romaine Street, which is like a block south of Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood, kind of a seedy part of Hollywood. But it was this kind of beautiful old Art Deco building. And that's what we shot as the front exterior when uh, the main character Eve arrives. And then when she departs and there's one other exterior scene, all that's there. We shot some other scenes with a taxi cab. Uh, They were shot sort of in Glendale or um, some part of L.A. We shot that all in one night, and then we—I think we shot the exteriors of the building the same night, and the rest of it was all shot in the building. We put our offices in the building, and the building was not particularly suitable for shooting. I mean, it was not like sound stages; or it was just an old, empty building.
0: The physical look—and I don't mean this in a demeaning way—is like if Videodrome had sex with Max Headroom, <laughs> which, which is how, with because you've got the dark lighting with all well, of the monitors and static, yeah. and I uh, mean, yeah. I yeah. totally mean that as a compliment. I love the look oh, of I the appreciate movie. It. I think it's a great compliment how did you achieve Uh, that on those sets because i I know especially with tv because if you're one of the reasons i asked what you were shooting on is i know like on max headroom they couldn't do actual on-set playback for all the tvs because of the frame rate differences to get that rolling screen thing right right. did you have a lot of problems because you have so many monitors Uh, and tvs in
2: this yeah no we shot everything yeah we shot everything practical we shot the that was real playback We did a pre-shoot in Super 8 of the video of the uh, Nerovid videos. So we did it. We shot for, I don't know, maybe I think a day, a Saturday afternoon for the for the uh, video for all the all the videos that played and then we just played them on the monitor we just played them off of a uh, member i mean there was somebody who who knew what they were doing to uh, sync it up uh we you know we i mean i had worked as an editor on movies and so on so i had you know a sense of technical some some technical proficiency and the people that i worked with all had experience i mean the cinematographer sven kirsten has to really be credited with the look of the movie did a fantastic job and he made a decision to shoot with these uh key flow lights and they were kind of uh they were they were brand new at the time and i think we got a great deal on using them because they were so new and not many people used them and we might have been the first feature to shoot with kina flow lights i think they're pretty common now i mean they're basically like fluorescent tubes but they were color you know the color temperature is a pro is matches tungsten i think so they were appropriate for shooting with a movie and i think they could time the blinking or whatever that uh, so you don't get uh, a flicker that you can get with fluorescence normally that was the thing and that that was the design though I said you know everything we have to use shadows I mean Pam Moffat, who was our production designer I mean I think the whole budget for the for the whole set design was like forty five hundred dollars it was ridiculous i mean the biggest expense of the movie was shooting on 35 millimeter film and getting it processed and that was the only way we're going to do it you know we had cast we had a sad cast we paid everyone everyone made some money we uh, you know we had a lot of crew that was pretty inexperienced but uh you know and i had friends who who came over and worked for nothing i had a friend uh who came from Texas, Bill Schwartz, who came from Texas to uh, because I had a gaffer who who didn't know what he was doing at all. He he owned equipment, and that was the attraction of hiring him, but he didn't know what he was doing in terms of lighting. And Sven and I, I came out of a photography background myself, so I was very critical of how things were going to look. When I started my career, I, I had intended to be a photographer, so I knew a lot about lenses and lighting, and, uh, and Sven is, a, is an artist, is a cinematographer. <laughs> we had a guy who was useless, so my friend Bill blew in on his own dime and came and helped, helped for weeks and was our gaffer and did uh, the lighting design. It was, it was great. It was so many great people chipped in and uh, did so much.
0: Well, because the lighting has this, because the movie, you know, you were shooting it in the early 1990s. Was it intentional that it has a very mid-1980s future thing? I I don't mean in a how Escape from New York is a very 1981 version of 1997, Uh but it it has a, because in the early 90s, there was that certain look. For the future. This had a very Uh 80s look for the future. Was that intentional?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the films that I really thought about in futurism were sort of like Blade Runner. I mean, we were kind of going for this German expressionist look,
0: too. Caligari all over that yeah yeah absolutely
2: Uh, and I mean uh, like I said Polanski I mean Polanski's repulsion is huge huge influence on me Uh, just in terms of the spaces the sense of uh, claustrophobia and the, the sort of sense of the space being a character in the movie. There was a lot
0: there was a lot of deep blacks where one thing I noticed when I watched it was you didn't get a sense of how big these rooms are because you'd be focusing on these lit up tables and then the monitors around there. It's like the room could have gone on for another half mile or the room could have ended right there. Yeah, it's wonderful
2: you thought that i'm sure they ended one inch beyond what the camera uh included everything was so small we you know we we made those rooms they were sort of like a had sort of a motif of cinder block uh, interior we wanted to make it as much sort of like like prison cells as possible so you know they had made some kind of fake cinder block things to glue on the walls and you know for the, the little bit of money we had. These rooms were tiny. Everything was tiny. Everything right. was small. And, 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 and that, so we just tried not to light it much. We just lit the characters and let everything fall into these inky shadows. I did watch the DVD recently, just to refresh my memory of the movie. The DVD looks pretty good and you can really see these inky blacks, man. Uh, that's what we were going for. I mean, I thought anything we can't afford sex, so don't show it, you know. And just suggest it. I mean that was all
0: not to make a pun to the title, it gives it a very dreamlike sort of quality to the bulk of the movie. Well, I love that. Well, I love that. I mean I think that is the this is the magic of
2: cinema this is why it's such an organic form and it's so powerful because all of us dream movies are like dreams at their best i love going to movies when i don't know a thing about it and it just takes me to some other world and i just love that you know that's that's what we were trying to do and and that that is you know that's where we you know the people who've been kind to the movie and said nice things about it definitely uh responded you know to 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 the atmosphere of the movie
0: did you know what i get a vibe of did you Hmm. ever see any Rince dream movies no, no, but I heard about them on your podcast,
2: and I'm definitely curious. I can, I can send CD, you, you a couple. That sounds so cool.
0: I can send you a couple. He has a style. Oh, God, I that love is God, that so all his own. Hopefully, your wife won't kill me for sending you porn.
2: I'm wifeless. I, I've had
0: two ex-wives. They're both uh, wonderful people,
2: but no, I'm I'm wife-free now. I have a girlfriend, and uh, she'll watch it. She's she's so
0: cool. So well, then we, we got to talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to this movie. I don't consider this a video drone ripoff. I see mm-hmm. I see some thematic similarities, but without question, yeah. But if you Google this movie, if you look for a. Rev- View of Liquid Dreams. Yeah. Even the Wikipedia page calls it a Videodrome ripoff. And you told yeah. me you hadn't even seen Videodrome I when hadn't you made seen this. It. No, I saw
2: scanners. I saw
0: other early shivers really early, or rabid maybe rabid yes
2: really early cronenberg and loved it you know later i saw dead ringers god i, I don't know when dead ringers came out was that around liquid that dreams?
0: was yeah that was 94. 91 92
2: somewhere okay, around there so a little bit after liquid dreams because we shot in fall of 90 yeah we shot in the fall of 1990 and it was in the Cannes film festival of 91 in may of 91 we finished the film just in time for the festival yeah. I mean, I love video drama. So awesome. And yes, there's remarkable similarities. And somebody read the script and told me that, too, before I made the movie. But I still hadn't seen the movie. And, you know, whenever I hear something too uh, close to what I'm doing, I get really nervous and really kind of upset that it's already been done. But I don't want to see it because I don't want to then, then anything I do, I feel like, oh, my God, I'm copying it. I'd rather just do it, do it, it's what's in my head. And if it comes out, you know, very similar, eh, you know,
0: what can you say? So, well, then, what do you think when you see review after review off of the VHS copy that call it a blatant video drone ripoff? Does that bug you uh, some? You know, I think it's only a compliment. I mean, I mean, to be compared to that,
2: I mean, the reviews, you know, that that I really paid attention to were the ones that came out right at the time of its release when it was in Cannes. So the Variety Review, the New York Times Review, uh, you know, around the country. It had a little bit of a, you know, played Midnight Movies in Dallas for a while. Dallas... Uh, I first review. read about it in Film Threat. Oh, yeah. I kind of do remember there was a... I don't remember that review, though. I don't remember. You know, there were a lot of negative reviews, but... Uh, uh,
0: it was a negative review, but okay, if if you listen to my show enough, you'll know that draws me to the movie. <laughs> well, good. For you, you you forge your own path, and you're not a sheep. But then there's there's the other thing of I mentioned Academy Video earlier, which is what it came yeah. out on on VHS. Yes, and yes. the DVD is borderline non-existent. It's so rare you're going to be paying a hundred bucks on eBay to find one.
2: It's ridiculous, and I don't even I've got one on my desk. Uh, this says Platinum. I don't even know who that is, and I don't even tell you the truth. I don't even think they were authorized to. Uh, like I think. I, I think some rights, quite frankly, were supposed to revert to me. I uh, I was gonna ask you who like owns this, this thing. Because the, I the, the, don't the reason know, like who 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 sold it to this platinum company?
0: <laughs> well well the, I mean, the, the reason I brought up Academy way, was in, like, Wisconsin. The reason I brought up Academy was a lot of their stuff when Academy went under is in that weird gray area where nobody know you know, they're not public domain, but mm-hmm. nobody knows who owns this stuff. That's why you, you go and look through Academy's V dhs most of those are never going to find a way on dvd oh, so God,
2: maybe that's what maybe that's
0: that's why it's not on netflix
2: or so i don't know it was on hbo a couple of times you know at the time of the release around the time of the theatrical release but yeah i don't know i don't know any you know, i didn't have anything to do with the distribution and they they didn't want to deal with me
1: <laughs> i i
2: saw the poster they made and i was so f- pissed such a sh- piece of shit pardon me for whoever spent one minute trying to think of how to make the f-ing poster but the british poster is kind of cool and the japanese poster is awesome i have a japanese poster on my wall framed
0: so is there any chance of this coming out on blu-ray or dvd or anything That's a, if the legal really maneuvering can be
2: figured out it's a really great question josh i i uh i'd love to find out
0: i'm going it's, to it's going sort to of weird it. that you're the director you're the writer and you don't know isn't that isn't that hollywood just it, it, that right is one completely sentence hollywood
2: hollywood's business is divorced to divorce artists from their materials, from their from their that which they produce.
0: Well, then one more question about Liquid Dreams, and we'll move on to the rest of your other parts of your career. You had some cameos in this movie, like Paul Bartel and John Doe yes. from X. Yeah. Were those just favors you called in, or uh, uh, Paul was? Yes, yeah. Paul was
2: kind of a mentor of mine. I met Paul. I was living in Dallas, Texas. I had moved there from Detroit. I was married. My wife had a job there. She had a job offer. I wanted to get out of Detroit. We both did. And I said, at the time, this was the early 90s, there was a lot of uh, 80s. There was a lot of filmmaking going on in Dallas. And that was like the time of Tender Mercies and stuff like that. And I and I said, well, look, she could choose a CPA. I said, LA, New York, or Dallas. And we ended up moving to Dallas. I was working freelancing as whatever I could get in, in the film business there. Eventually, I became an assistant editor, and then that led, led me to my career as an editor. And I worked part-time at this movie theater that had foreign and art films. I met, well, we would get we would get weekly variety mailed to the movie theater. And I was the assistant manager, so we'd have midnight movies. And I'd sit there and read read the variety from cover to cover, wanting so bad to be in the business, really. And I read; I remember reading the review of Eating Raul that uh,
0: was from Cannes. And Eating Raul was made for 300000 Their characters from Eating Raul even show up in Chopping Mall from Jim Wynorski. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Because Jim was a friend of Paul's. You're not going to stump and me anyways, on, on weirdo movie trivia, man. I love it. I love it. Yes.
2: So... I read about Paul, and then Paul made
0: Ian Rowell came
2: and played at our theater. It was a midnight movie, and Paul came to the theater, and I met him, you know, months after I'd read the review. And he was such a nice guy. Cut to three, four, five, six, six months later, there's a movie going to shoot in Dallas. Paul's going to direct it. They're looking for an assistant editor who would work as a local and then move to L.A. again as a local. So they wouldn't have to put any put up the assistant editor, and uh, so I interviewed with the editor of the movie, a guy named Alan Tumayan, who cut *Eating Owl talked over the phone and I think I was at the movie theater when I when he interviewed me and I talked him into letting me be his assistant editor that movie's called not for publication that Paul directed Nancy Allen was the star of that movie and then uh, I moved back to LA I became friends with Paul we would hang out and go to movies together he's a really cool guy and and uh, he would you know he'd done a lot of short film
0: for instance one of them he made this film called the secret cinema did you ever see that uh, short saw an amazing stories called that i don't know if that was based on he remade Paul's. it he remade it for i was gonna say i thought back. he i thought paul yeah. Bartel directed that episode of amazing stories too. he did
2: he did prior to that in the in the uh, this would have been the 60s i think i don't know exactly when yes yeah, sick probably then he made this short on 16 millimeter called the secret cinemas it's a great movie it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a movie about a woman who who be- is very paranoid and becomes convinced that everyone but her is in on it's like precursor to reality tv way before that and the, and what it is is they're making a sort of soap opera about her without her knowledge with hidden cameras Everyone's in on it, including her mother. <laughs> the people are going to the movies at night, like it's shown like a serial in movie theaters to see her crazy life, and they're
0: pranking her constantly. I remember when I saw that amazing stories, so there was also a Twilight Zone episode from the eighties one called Secret Service. I, I swear the Truman Show plagiarized. It is Probably. it's it, it's the Truman show. Well, this was sort of like that too as well. Anyways,
2: this guy Barry Denon was in the movie, this actor. I would, you know, hang out with Paul, and Paul was such a cinema lover that then when I made liquid, then I then I then was assistant editor for Paul and working for Alan when Paul directed uh, Lust in the Dust with uh, Divine. Divine and Tab Hunter and all that. And uh, you know I just had a great time working with them. And then I spun off. Then I started editing myself. But when yep. I did liquid dreams you know i stayed in touch with paul and i asked him if he would play a part in the movie and he did very graciously played uh played a part
0: how'd you get john doe for max
2: john doe we just you know just casting uh somebody knew him or some cat his his agent and he was really
0: cool guy i remember
2: we were we 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 shot those uh taxi cab scenes uh, all one night and they couldn't get the camera working or the camera mount or some shit wasn't working. So, And we had this uh, checker cab, which I wanted specifically. And so I said, John, I've always wanted to drive a checker cab. Let's go for a ride. So we got in the car and we drove around for like an hour and talked and uh, while they fixed the camera. And then we went back when they told us some walkie-talkie they were ready. Totally cool guy. I recently saw X perform. And it was great. Him, Mink Stoll.
0: What do you think the legacy of Liquid Dreams is? Do you think it's just a weird curiosity on the internet? Well, to presume otherwise is probably just presumptuous. I, I don't know
2: what it is. I mean, what the great thing of making the movie, and when I went to, when I had screenings of, you know, film festivals, you know, there was always people who would walk out of them. Either they just thought it sucked, or they just were offended by it, or bored, or whatever. It wasn't what they thought they were going to go see. But there were usually a few people who loved it. And, I mean, I remember a woman who after a screening in Montreal at the Montreal Film Festival, coming up to me and just couldn't express herself, but she loved it so much.
0: (laughs) I actually had, uh, you're probably going to like this. I actually cut out the Freedom from the Flesh segment, and I put that on YouTube. Most of the comments were, oh my God, this is amazing. What is this from? And I tell people, oh, it's from this movie called Liquid Dreams. They're, huh? So awesome.
2: Well, it's a shame that they say but I'm not surprised. But, um... But I actually talked to the composer, Ed Tomney, today, amazingly talented. You know, I knew I wanted a very special soundtrack, a very special sound design. So I reached out to the, uh, you know, radio station here, KCRW in Los Angeles, which is very influential for you know, for music here anyways. And there was a certain uh, disc jockey there, and I reached out to him, I'm trying to think of his But anyways, this disc jockey at KCRW, I said to him, I got to find, you know, I'm looking for composer. I want a really special composer. Movie is very, you know, it's indie movie and it's very unusual. I need somebody who can really do kind of dark, interesting, textural stuff. And he gave me... like three different names. And I think he gave me vinyl discs of them. I just immediately connected with Ed's industrial music. And I went to visit Ed at his studio. He'd done a uh, soundtrack for one other movie before mine. It was a Lorenzo Lamas movie. I don't know the name of it. I had No, he came to the editing room, and I started. I showed him a sequence. And I think it was one of the sequences of Eve walking down one of the hallways. And the, those hallways were in that Technicolor building. Those were um, nitrate vault film vaults. And they may have the most eerie feeling.
0: They have kind of a so cold, impersonal feeling.
2: Oh, my God. Completely. You just pray that you're not entombed in there. Playing for this for him on the Moviola and Ed says, I've got to go to a bowling alley. I was like, well, can you just wait until we have our meeting about the music? He goes, no, I've got to go to a bowling alley to record the sound of a bowling ball going down the lane so I can slow it down and play it backwards. And I was like, Ed, you're the guy. <laughs> I just grabbed his hand. You've got to do this movie. And I loved his score. He just, we collaborated, uh, you know, through the process of making that score close friends ever since you know he lives in new york now so i don't see him or talk to him frequently but uh what a talented 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 guy
0: did his score ever come out on cd or was there ever a soundtrack to this or just the bits i could pull out of the movie without dialogue boy not to my knowledge that would be a gem that would
2: just be a gem
0: i was was always bothers me when i hear great music in a movie and there's you ever see slave girls from beyond infinity yes I love the <laughs> I love, I love the I love the score to that and it was never released officially and I'm like damn it that was one of those movies that never had a soundtrack it's not like released.
2: Richard Band or something right
0: No it wasn't Richard Band it was something else cuz I don't think Full Moon made that one or Empire I think that was an Empire pickup I think I Slave Girls was Yeah I think you're right Okay speaking of Charles Band you worked for Charles Band Do you have I did What was it like because we did a whole four episode retrospective on everything from Charles Band Productions through Empire through full moon through the movies charlie never got around to making but announced
2: i was i when i did liquid dreams there was i went to well first of all i tried to get an agent while i was making the film or, or maybe when we were editing the film thinking well i want to direct another movie i need an agent and then i was inviting then we had a screening in hollywood for the movie for casting crew and i wanted to invite agents and the producer, Cassian, was telling me, you better you should invite the agents. So this was before it was, uh, maybe, it, maybe it had gotten into can at that point. I called all these agents and one of the assistants, you know you can only talk to the assistants. And one of the assistants said, look, and maybe I'd called him probably repeatedly. And he said, look, no one's going to come see your movie. You're a nobody. And he says, unless you get some review or something, forget it. I was like, okay, well, thanks for the honesty. And that was true. And, and Cassian got a friend of his who was an agent at CAA to come see the movie. And he told me immediately after the movie, this is not from my customers as he said i said all right so then when we were in Cannes, and then a variety review came out of the movie and uh i I should find that review and send it to you because the review started with the words hot direction and it it, it loved the movie it got a great rave review after that i came home from Cannes, and this was the days of uh, analog telephone machines and i had like 28 agents uh, 28 messages from agents saying please don't sign with anyone else until we've met so uh, that 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 review changed everything so so then that launched to then i got an agent uh, signed with one of these people and then that launched two years of going to film festivals every week i would have more than one script delivered to me from a studio i would study script work up a pitch none of them were very good kind of mainstream movies that i wasn't suited for and i would go and make my pitch at studio and usually come in second i was offered a movie right when i returned from Canada, but i turned it down and then uh then finally I was so broke I made a dime, you know, I mean, I was having kind of a glamorous life in a way. I mean, I was do- eating, drinking movies and pitching uh, at studios and, you know, going on studio lots and thinking, wow, I'm in Hollywood, I'm a director, this is exciting. But I did not make a, literally a penny. And then I was uh, certainly going to get divorced. My my wife had had it. And then I went to... A friend of mine was editing a movie for uh, Full Moon. Yeah, it was Full Moon then. And he said, Charlie Band is directing a movie. He needs an editor. You should come meet him. I've recommended you. So I came... I met Charlie and I felt like that, like uh, Dustin Hoffman in uh, Kramer versus Kramer, where he goes to the Christmas party and he's got to get a job or he's not going to be able to fight for custody of his kids. I had to get a job that day or I would be divorced for sure. As it worked out, I got divorced anyways. But I did get that job and then I, I was cutting for Charlie and then somebody there. Daniel Schweiger. Well, Daniel's a cineast. I mean, he's really into movies in the same way you are. A very smart uh, guy. But Daniel worked in their trailer department. He cut all their trailers. And he had seen Liquid Dreams and loved it. So he went to Charlie and said, this guy, Mark, that you've got edited. Because I, I edited a movie. I think it was Doll Man versus Demonic Toys some 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 full moon title he said you gotta get mark to direct he's really good and then uh that led to me doing a movie called huntress in romania first i didn't want to do it and i didn't tell them i was a director because i thought doing this kind of schlocky stuff that that uh, you know i'm fine with doing kind of exploitation movies because they're visceral and they can be good i mean uh you mentioned ms 45 as an art film ms 45 was a bit of a of a uh, inspiration for liquid dreams too i wasn't against it but but you know most for the most part it was just so schlocky and full moons stuff but they were making some films in romania and i was cutting one and i thought and i was i remember i was cutting this movie in the, in the, I had a shot of the main character getting off a train, like the train pulled in the station and the guy got off the train, walked, walked into the station. I thought, well, that's cool. But usually if you do that, you get one take because you put the actor on, you buy them a train ticket, you get one shot and then that's done. No, the train backed up and he did it again. I said, how can they do that? It's so expensive. Well, it's Romania for a hundred bucks. You can do that. So then I became interested in working for Fullman and I made uh, three movies for them in Romania. That was my experience. In fact, I, I was gonna do Dr. Mordred Two and we were in pre-production. We were I literally was storyboy. I had a storyboard artist doing storyboards. I was also gonna do this movie called Quadrant that was a, U, a U-boat movie and uh, we were building sections of the U-boats. All this was going on I had all these movies I was directing uh, in pre-production on and then they got shut down so that was the end of a full moon for me but you know, Charlie was very nice he, he saw the first movie I did, that Huntress he took one, he watched it once, he had no notes, he said, this is great, <laughs> well let's get you back to Romania and
0: make another movie. So that was fun. because
2: it was a lot of freedom.
0: You became an editor more as your regular profession after a while. You've, you've edited a couple of shows. I defend and Freddy's Nightmares. A lot of people on the internet do not like Freddy's Nightmares. Uh Uh-huh. What was it like working, I mean, I know you were post-production, but on Freddy's Nightmares because I I don't know why, maybe it's just I was the right age, because I was, let's see, when that came out, I would have been 13 when Freddy's Nightmares was on. That was a Friday night, right after the news, before Headbangers Ball. Yes. Yes. That show meant a lot to me, even though objectively I can say, yeah, this is kind of garbage. But what what was it like? Talk a little bit about Freddy's Nightmares, damn it. Well, you know, I don't remember it. That well, because it was so long ago.
2: You know, I remember the the other editors. I remember the building we worked in. I kind of remember cutting the show. Oh, what's the guy's name who played Freddie? Uh, Robert England. Robert England. He was a nice guy. Met him a couple times, and uh, you know, I don't have. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't have good stories about Freddie's night. I just don't. Uh, it was a it was a fine experience. I, I i explored the idea of directing that that was before i did with dreams i
0: think no maybe not
2: When was freddy's, Nightmare? freddy's what, Nightmares? freddy's nightmares was 88 to
0: 90. So it
2: would okay. have been before well, liquid then dreams it was before. Yeah, it was before liquid dreams. So I looked into it and uh, the producer who was cool said,
0: "Look, that won't
2: happen because I've got all these favors to these feature directors and they're do- they I I can get them to do it. That's what it'll be."
0: <laughs> well, then like one of the things with Freddy's Nightmares was always just how much it pushed the sex boundaries. There was so much underboob and <laughs> things like that. Was was that something I think
2: that it was for syndication
0: or something? Yeah, it right? was first-run syndication so they could get yeah. away with a lot. As an editor, How much did you have to cut that close or did they just shoot it just close enough? I think
2: they just they knew the boundaries in shooting and I guess the, you know if somebody's nipple showed we knew that wasn't going to fly I don't remember specifically incidents uh, anything but just like yeah it was edgy I mean that that was good about it that was good but I had done this other show called, it was another syndicated show Tales from the Dark Side I grew up on Dark Side I love Dark Side Tales from the Dark Side well I cut one of them I think for this director named Mark Jean and uh, Susan Strasberg was in the other
0: an episode that I cut.
2: You know, it was fun. I lo- I love the the genre. I love the anthology
0: kind of horror genre. It's, it's awesome. Well, you worked on another show called Soldier of Fortune, or later it became... um, It stayed SOF. It was first Soldier of Fortune Incorporated. It stood for something else in the second season, the the Dead of season. There was something in that where that became a staple of later like Jerry Bruckheimer type productions. Were were you responsible for the editing thing where, this is going to sound weird to try and describe audibly, but where you would take a shot from the end of the segment right before it would go to commercial, tint it to a Color and use that at the beginning yes. as sort of a teaser. That became a regular on NCIS did, and CSI in and stuff.
2: Kind of yes, exactly. Yes, the boxes. We would do these bu- video, these boxes. We would put things in boxes. You'd freeze frame a shot, move it up into the corner of the show, into the, in, of the frame, and and we'd have like the sort of iconic images of what had happened in that act. Leave the viewer with the idea of like, oh, well, these are the clues. This is what we've accomplished in this act in terms of solving whatever mystery we were trying to solve or whatever the. Agenda was of the team uh yeah i had fun in that yeah i did i I was pretty involved with that with creating that that was one where they promised me the producers promised me if that won another season i would direct Kiss of death for the show because then it didn't didn't go for another season. But um
0: Do you know do you know why? Because season two is cut off at only three quarters. They never got an actual finale. I, they I they set up remember. a big plot twist with one of the characters being a traitor, and then oh yeah, you're canceled, and we're not even gonna shoot the last five episodes of season know. two.
2: Yeah, I do remember it ended abruptly.
0: I don't know. Some politics. Somebody was probably embezzling money and
2: they did, you know, they had to cover up the, that there wasn't money or something.
0: <laughs> well, the show looked very expensive. That was the thing with SOS it looked really expensive for a syndicated show it was all shot in uh, valencia
2: california in uh, santa clarita uh it was all we never went on locations to any other countries it was set all over the world and it was just shot on back lots and streets and warehouses and stuff like that we shot on a warehouse we shot in a warehouse in santa clarita we didn't even
0: have a sound stage well, you worked um, on another show that again nobody remembers but me <laughs> you yeah. see undercover Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I that's a show I can't believe is not on DVD yet. Although I think I know why, because I remember that used a lot of then contemporary music in it, and I'm yes. sure it's a it's a music licensing nightmare to try and get on DVD.
2: I guess, I guess that could be. It was there was a pretty good music budget on that movie, and the guy who was the creator of it, you know, he had written Armageddon. Uh, Sean and Danny DeVito produced it. Oh, his company, yeah, yeah, right. I was fired off that show. It was just one of those deals where uh, the producer, you know, was a very talented writer. You know, he wanted to...
0: <laughs> Should I talk about it? I don't know. That's up to you. I'm not going to push you to, I... but I'm not going to say no.
2: Yeah. There were boundary issues. There's there's certain things that, that people are supposed to be allowed to do. And I'm not talking about sexually or something like that, not harassment. But um, there, no, just, just in terms of... Producers aren't supposed to look at cuts until the director looks at them. As an editor, I wouldn't bend that rule i mean i felt i you know look i came up loving movies and i identified movies with the directors in terms of create creatively so there was a conflict where he wanted to come in and look at some scene that the director hadn't yet seen i said well i'm sorry i can't see it. we have to show it to uh whoever the director was i I can't show it to you until unless he gives permission and he said okay that's fine and he left the editing room and then i was fired so so but he was uh yeah it was a weird uh there was a whole a lot uh, i was was one of many people fired i think i was there were four editors fired in a pretty short period for various things you know he was a talented writer the show was
0: cool i kind of liked the show i I love the the show well then let me ask you this let me ask you this as an editor when you Mm -hmm. because i see like there are shows that you edit like current shows that are on the air now that you also direct episodes of when you're directing are you mentally editing in your, does it make it easier to like you go, okay, this and this will cut together, but then you read the script and you're like, oh, that's not really going to cut together like that. As an editor, I would think it would make it easier to direct, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's fantastic. It's the best school for directing.
2: It's the best school. I mean, there's, there's another school would be to be like a script supervisor because you're with a director all the time and you're understanding the pieces that you have to make. They have to shoot And I think really those are being a writer, but I mean, either you're editing is just you're, you are putting the pieces of the puzzle together. You're doing nothing but studying performance if you're any good. And that's what drives me is, you know, the truthfulness of the performance. That's which is moving that which raises the back of the hairs in the back of my neck. That's, you know, and that's just that's that's the way now some editors of course uh and some people don't have the personality to want to be on set and um you know be sort of the focus of 100 people going what do we do next and looking at their watches and so on and so forth but absolutely whenever i read the script i'm thinking of what the what the shots will look like so and i just want to shoot those shots i really don't want to shoot a lot of other stuff yeah. in television they want you to shoot coverage of everything so that it can re- be recut by the producers at a later date in any fashion and, and the fact is especially with network television there's the time constraints of getting to time and they have to lose dialogue they have to figure out ways so they do have to have flexibility there's no question and you do want as a director i want to have flexibility too because you do screen things you put it together you edit it you think it's going to be brilliant conceived it then you see oh you know this does, just doesn't work either because i didn't conceive it well the actor isn't that good the writing isn't that good. Well, cause you I just know, come up with a new way.
0: I know when I interviewed Joe Dante, Mm. Uh, And and Rob Zombie also had a very similar experience when he worked on CSI. Dante said he had basically no control, that that everything had to be shot in the CSI style. It had to be shot with the CSI lighting. All he basically did was figure out where the camera went, and he found it really restrictive and disappointing to shoot his CSI. He said the only real creative input he had was bringing in like Robert Picardo and his regulars to guest that episode.
2: Well, I got to work with Joe on an episode of... MacGyver known of Joe because many of my friends had worked with him as editors and I knew that he was a close friend of Paul Bartels and I think that Joe was the uh, sort of maitre d or master of ceremonies is what I meant to say Joe was the master of ceremonies for Paul's memorial service which I unfortunately couldn't go to because I was out of the country but but I got to work with Joe and uh that was fun and we got to talk and yes he was very frustrated with television
0: well i, I, I know, don't blame him rob's you should look up the rob zombie interview that he did on fox news about directing his csi man he and david caruso did not get along at all but who did get along
2: with david caruso
0: <laughs> that's that i've heard that story too but yeah. rob zombie basically said there's a reason he'll never direct tv again yeah it was because of csi kind of amazing that he got to direct one I don't know how that came about it. It's a really bad episode. <laughs> I, I I don't think that's Rob's fault. I, I, okay, I yeah. can pick on Rob Zombie a lot. Sure. Because his movies are generally garbage. But <laughs> I don't blame him for his CSI episode because, especially wow. after talking to Dante, I know he had no control over anything yeah. other than bringing yeah. in William Forsyth and Malcolm McDowell and that kind of thing.
2: Right, right, right. Which is pretty cool.
0: TV, it's not, it's not. It's not a director's medium.
2: I mean, there's some great directors working in television. And, you know, it's a different, if we're talking about, you know, streaming and the, the best of television that's being done now, that's a whole different animal. That is that is a whole different thing than doing those network shows like a CSI or MacGyver or something like that. So I worked on uh, recently this show, Interrogation, which was a great experience. And the directors did a fantastic job. And they had a lot of freedom. Ernest Dickerson was one of the directors. And the other was Patrick Cady. And they both did an awesome
0: job what do you want people to know about liquid dreams? Because I'm going to be contacted after this show airs when people saying, I now want to see this movie. That's otherwise not legally available. What do you want to tell people about liquid dreams?
2: Gee, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I mean, you know, my thoughts about it are so personal. Uh, What a great experience it was and uh, my attachment to the people that I worked with on it. And, you know, going to Cannes and being on all the festivals, uh, you know, I met uh, Roman Polanski uh, through the movie. Uh, I mean, Liquid Dreams is my version of The Wizard of Oz. And the freedom of uh, the flesh
0: segment's almost literally that meets yes, Texas absolutely. Chainsaw Massacre, yes. kind of Clear, very clearly. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, it's just uh, I don't, I don't, I wish I could formulate a good response to your question. I feel uh, okay. Then, then let
0: me then let me rephrase that. it slightly. I'm not so subtly going to be encouraging people to pirate this movie. Do you want to say anything about that? Oh, I hope that people
2: will be able to see the movie any way they can. I totally encourage them to any way they can see the movie. <laughs> I, I, if I could uh, uh, find a way to freely duplicate CDs and mail them to people, I, I would. But um, I just don't, uh, yeah, I would love for people to see it. And I hope they have a great time watching it.
0: Do you have anything to add to what Liquid Dreams meant to you? What What, what, what Liquid Dreams was to you? You know, I think when you're making your first film, you really just have all this
2: idealism and you just, you want to tell all the important things that seem so important to you. And you think you're just going to make this great statement. But I mean, I was very interested at the time in how I saw the media and and our culture. And this was was 30 years ago, commodifying sex and sort of separate and objectifying everybody. But using sex as a kind of a drug, I mean, and you see it, it's just, It's only gotten more pervasive and more strong, you know, in advertising and every messaging. Sex is everywhere. And also I was fascinated with the idea, sort of science fiction ideas of like music which I find can be really transporting for me, music and images to be almost drug-like and take you to a different state. And they, they do. I mean, they take me to a different mindset, transport me, and I love that. I mean, that's why I love photography and movies. And I wanted to make a movie about that. And that's sort of what Liquid Dreams partly was trying to say. And sort of even politics. I mean, the guy, there's a line in there where the villain, the major, says about him that he was going into politics so that's those were the ideas, and that's you know that's what I was trying to play with that sort of cyberpunk sensibility uh uh very into william
0: gibson and uh and this sort of a uh, collision of media and politics. then do you think in the age of the internet that liquid dreams aged better or worse than you would have hoped? you know, I think things always age worse
2: than you hope, but I think it 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 surprisingly doesn't look. Too bad. It still holds up for the parts that were good. The parts that didn't work when it was made still don't work. Sort of the themes are only more relevant, really, of, of people being manipulated. That's that's really relevant.
0: It's pretty interesting, isn't it, Peter? That he's worked for Full Moon. He's worked on Freddy's Nightmares. He's he's made movies like like Liquid Dreams. But and then he goes and directs episodes
1: of like MacGyver and stuff like that isn't that a weird career trajectory no i mean yeah i'm looking at his uh his imdb right now and he's literally just been a consistently working producer director editor he's done tales from the dark side mandroid is that the full moon film mandroid yes it is yes it is he he worked for charlie more than once and i i'm really disappointed that
0: i don't know what 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 happened he's not even sure what happened he was going to be directing dr mordred 2 that never got made
1: well well i mean there were a lot of uh, full moon and empire movies that like band wanted to do but it didn't end up happening but yeah he's also done Dollman and demonic toys puppet master four uh invisible the chronicles of benjamin knight so he's done a ton of the uh done a ton of the full moon stuff but then continuing on from then He's worked on stuff in in ninety nine, two 2000, 2003. just all sort cert- a lot of shows. You know the the Tar the the uh, Tarzan show. What else here? And then all the way up to California Cation. He's done a bit of which is which is a great show. Well, uh, it was
0: for the first season.
1: Well, yeah, he he worked on it early on. The new MacGyver in twenty eighteen just did a couple episodes. Uh, Interrogation, which he just did. He he's literally shot episodes for for twenty twenty that have come out like this this guy has been a consistently working entertainment industry guy, mainly as a as an editor. Is it sort of weird going from relatively
0: low budget cyberpunk to, you know, MacGyver?
1: Well, kinda, yeah. But obviously he he knew where his uh bread was buttered. He he obviously pursued the the editing thing because obviously that's something he's very good at. And it's clear that he is because just as an editor alone, he has um about I'd say about sixty credits. Like he's worked on a lot of stuff over over the years. Like consistently since Liquid Dreams came out and before that, he's just been working pretty much every year on on a new on a new project on something different. He is really fun to
0: talk to. Not not counting the interview you guys just heard. He and I sat and talked for what I think an hour and a half, two hours after that, just talking movies, TV, pop culture. It's I I love finding an interviewee who wants to keep talking after we're done with business. I, I always liked it because sometimes when you get an interviewer or you get in, you get someone you're interviewing, it's okay. Are we done? Okay. Bye. And, <laughs> and then sometimes it's, let's just shoot the shit for another hour. Like Joe Bob Briggs,
1: when I interviewed Joe Bob Briggs, there was another 90 minutes that where we were just talking various movies. Well, you, you can just tell that he's a very talkative kind of guy in general. Like he, he loves going off on like tangents and things like that. Mark Manos is a guy who should be known
0: more. I think Liquid Dreams should be known more. And right now, although there are, of course, copyright issues, Liquid Dreams is on my YouTube channel, so you can find the movie if you do want to see it. But <laughs> Which if... is how I watched it. <laughs> If that gets taken down because of the copyright issues, which is a whole different thing because Mark is not even sure that the people who are claiming the copyright actually own it because he's pretty sure that the rights have reverted back to him so he doesn't when know do what these people are when, claiming.
1: When somebody copyrights something, when do they ever actually own it? Like, I, I literally got a copyright strike on my Abraxas video of somebody claiming they own it, and we should all know It's a public domain movie. Abraxas, yeah, is public domain. Nobody owns it. They sell this shit at, like, dollar stores. Right now, you can watch the movie on YouTube, but that
0: may not last. So that's why you need the VPN. You need to go find Liquid Dreams. It is on some torrent sites. And as you heard in the interview, Mark wants you to see the movie any way you can. So you should. You should should see it. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, one of the things I loved about Liquid Dreams, in all honesty, it's a time capsule of the early 90s and how they thought the future was going to be. Oh, absolutely. Did did you not get that? I mean, it's very 90s. I don't mean that as an insult because I really like that early 90s
1: look at the early 2000s. Aesthetically, very much so. It it definitely had that kind of a 90s, uh, a little bit of the, not too much of it because it was a bit more of a darker film with a little more contrast and a a little more use of like uh, shadows and black and whatnot. But it still kind of had that. Sort of soft focus, uh, day glow look to it, which I thought was really, really nice looking. And, and it definitely had that 90s gazing into the future vibe. Like, I, I think, um, if anything, it is a very aesthetically pleasing film. And, and for that reason alone, I think it's, uh, definitely worth checking out. And it's got John
0: Doe from X and Mink Stole and Paul Bartel in it. And it, it's got a nice, interesting cameo cast as well.
1: Tracy, Tracy Walter has a pretty, uh, pretty pivotal character he's kind of one of the main characters in the film
0: and like I said Candace Daly the lead she overdosed on I think it was heroin just a couple of years after this and I actually think she was pretty good and she could have had a career I don't I don't know what caused her to do that
1: I do think she was um, definitely one of the better actresses in the film I think Liquid dreams is a great
0: movie I think it's one of those movies that it, it kind of has cult written all over it and oh for sure absolutely. And right now, I think the reason it's not a cult film is its lack of availability. I think if Liquid Dreams would all of a sudden pop up on Amazon Prime or Hulu or Netflix, it would probably get a lot of good good traction. But it's the fact that it's in this weird legal limbo where nobody really knows who who owns it, everybody claims that they own a piece of it, and they probably
1: don't. I think (laughs) it's sort of a lost film in a way, isn't it? It is, yeah, especially since the... uh... The version you shared is kind of one of the only versions of it. It doesn't really have a widescreen release. It doesn't really have a Blu-ray or a DVD copy a lot of it is still just the rip of the VHS essentially
0: yeah so I say go and look up Liquid Dreams watch it on my YouTube channel for as long as that's out there I will f***ing stop you sooner or later egida you f***ing pieces of shit. is a company that they're based out of Spain where the public domain doesn't exist so they claim they own everything they claim they that's own Night of the Living Dead, Abraxas uh... they, they claim they own all of the movies that are in the public domain because they oh. don't believe in public Public domain, and they are so. They're probably the ones that claimed my uh, Abraxas video, most likely. Probably Egida. If if there's any YouTuber out there, as soon as I say Egida all of a sudden they all had a shiver go up their spine and go, those bastards <laughs> again. But I, I will, I, 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 oh, I wish I could sue Agata. I wish I had the money to sue them in small claims court and get them just to be destroyed off the face of the earth. Agata, I have a vendetta against you, but th- th- that's that's something totally different. So I say go find Liquid Dreams, look up some of Mark's other films, look up some of his full moon movies like Huntress and that. Mark is a guy, he, he's, he's one of those guys that kind of exists in the shadows. That's what an editor does. If an editor does his job right, you never know he did anything at all, and that's what Mark's skill is. So, on that note, Peter, where could people find you
1: if they would wish to do so? On Twitter, at Cinematica, on uh, YouTube, The Cinematicus, Facebook, The Cinematicus, Twitter, at Uncle Blackie Pete. You're an (laughs) idiot. of course... And of course on Patreon at Zinematica if you want to throw some of the monies at me. And yes, go go watch Liquid Dreams. I had some some issues with it regarding some of the acting, but I do think overall it's a it's an important movie. It's definitely a cult movie. I think it's a great looking film and a very well edited movie. And I do think more people need to go check it out and see some of the uh, the, the cyberpunk of the of the early 90s that they hadn't seen before. And I do think this is a very good example of that of film. I I love the way it looks. I love the overall aesthetic of it, and uh, more people definitely do uh, need to go check it out.
0: And you can find me at 1201beyond.com Remember the Nord code? 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. We have a Patreon at 1201beyond or Radio Drome. It really helps us out a lot. And you can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com Guys, go find Liquid Dreams and keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Ready? Rotate! Layback and, and action. action.